Good morning, church. All right, all right, church, you may be seated. Um, thanks for being here this morning. As both Tim and Josiah have said, if you're here for the first time, what a joy it is for us to be here with you or that you're here with us. Uh, anyways, for those of you that don't know me, my name is uh, Christian Moscoso, and I am so thankful that I get to bring the word uh, today. Uh, it's been quite a while since I've preached here. I've missed it. Uh, some of you guys are like, this guy again. Um, but hey, you know, thankfully, it's the word of God. <laughs> so uh, how about we pray and then jump into this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. We thank you, Lord, that these words that we are holding are not man-made, but they have been inspired by you, Lord, for the uh, encouragement, Lord, for the equipment, for the correcting, for the sanctification of your people. And so, Father, this morning we sit under your word. Father, we submit to it, Lord, and we pray, would you transform our hearts? Would you stir our affections, Lord, through your word? Heavenly Father, I pray that as I preach this message, Lord, that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that I say that might be coming from my own understanding or misunderstanding, Lord, I pray that that would fall down and be forgotten, Lord. Make us a people of the word with discernment, Lord. People that know your word, that can smell, Lord, whenever your word is being mishandled, Lord. I pray that you would be glorified among us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Clearly, as you hear me pray, you can hear the confidence behind it. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I do want you guys to know, we love the Word of God, and our desire behind this pulpit is always to honor the Word of God, to submit to what it is saying, and not to what we're thinking. And so, as you hear me pray that, it's an honest thing, because I do know that I am imperfect, and I know um, that I might miss it at times, but it is our desire. And you know, we have put the time, we have put the effort to, to study what the Word is saying. Um, now, for those of you that don't know me, as I said, my name is Christian, and I have been a Christian for my entire life, clearly. Uh, <laughs> no, but I've been a believer since I was very young. I, uh, I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, and so uh, I was probably four or five years old when I came to know the Lord. If I tell you the truth, I did not remember a day in my life when I didn't know Jesus, when I didn't love Jesus. Even when I was running away from him, I knew that he was the Lord and the Savior. Um, and so I've known him my whole life. And I have a hard time pointing back to the one day of my conversion because I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. Now, one of the things that I've learned in this and in, in, in my life as a believer and as a pastor, is that the Christian life is an interesting ride. Part of this is because we live in what Fleming Rutledge calls the in-between, or what is more commonly known as the already, not yet. You see, the author of Hebrews describes this, the, 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 the already, not yet, the season we're in. He describes it perfectly when he says, this in chapter 14, uh, in chapter 10, verse 14, he says this, for by a single offering, this is talking about Jesus, obviously, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Now he's saying two things. He is saying that we have been perfected. We have been made perfect. And then he says that we are being sanctified. 
Which is a bit redundant, isn't it? Because when he says that we are being sanctified, he basically means that we are being made perfect. So another way of saying what he's saying here is that Christ has perfected us for all time, or he has perfected for all times those who are being perfected. What? What does he mean by this? By this he means that at the cross, Christ Jesus not only took our sins upon himself, upon himself, I'm sorry, but he also clothed us with his righteousness. See, this is what, what theologians call the double imputation of the cross, where our mess, our sinfulness, our brokenness was put on Christ. But that's not where it ends. His righteousness, his perfection was put on us. We were clothed with his righteousness at the cross. So practically what that means is that before God, our standing before God the Father went from being enemies of God to now being children of God. From being the object of his wrath to being his beloved people. We, bent, we went from being dead in our sins and our trespasses to being perfect in front of him. I want you to hear this this morning. If you are in Christ... If you have called upon the name of Christ for salvation, when God sees you, he does not see your mess. He does not see the last time you messed up. He does not see your foolishness or your sinfulness. He sees you perfect. And he loves you. And yet, at the same time, if you are at all like me, which you are, in practice, you're still a long way from actually being perfect. This is why we are all in a process that is called sanctification. You are still in this process, as am I. So your walk with Christ is a little wobbly. You stumble. You fall. And by the grace of God, you get up again and keep walking. As we grow into the righteousness of Christ that Christ gave us at the cross, the Christian walk is a wobbly walk with grass-stained pants and skin knees it's a messy process. The reason I mention this is because, as we'll see this morning, David's life illustrates this wobbly walk. David, the hero, the king, the giant slayer, the deliverer of Israel, is also an inconsistent man. Who, as Tim mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is just as capable of seeing God's grace and acting in amazing faith, even when others don't see it, as he is capable of completely fumbling God's grace. You see, for the first few chapters of the story of David, if you're here for the, for the first time, we've been walking through the books of First and Second Samuel. And so we, for the past bunch of weeks, we have looked at the lives of Samuel, of Saul, of David, and we've spent many a week in the life of David. And up until this point... Um, the author of the, of the books of First and Second Samuel, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously, presented David as a type of a Messiah, of a Savior. He was a deliverer. He was brave in the face of danger. But then, in this last couple of chapters, things have taken a turn. David is now being used no longer as a type of Christ, but as an illustration of us, <laughs> an illustration of you and of me the children of God. In today's passage, we'll see David's wobble, and we will see the consequences of his inconsistency. 
The passage this morning is also a story of contrasts, you will see. Last week, Tim talked about David being persecuted by Saul. Tired. Wow. That was a snoring right there. David was being persecuted by Saul. He was tired of running away. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands. And he goes to look for safety among the Philistines, the enemy of God. Which, is, was, uh, which, is, uh, which was, as we will see soon, a pretty dumb idea that, he, that carries a lot of consequences. But today we'll also see how even when fear leads us, the children of God, to make bad decisions, God deals gently with his children. And we will see how in his mercy, he watches over us and he restrains us in our foolishness. The story, like I said, is a story of contrast. Because it's a contrast between the story of David and the story of Saul as it has been for the past bunch of chapters. Because when, when faced with the prospect of another battle against the Philistines, when, once again, in his fear, Saul ran toward darkness. Last week we saw that he ran to the medium of Ender to find answers. He broke the law, the very law that he had, uh, he had imposed. And here we'll see shortly that this will eventually lead him to his death and demise. Now, in the case of those who oppose God like Saul, those who are not his children, their foolishness leads them to death. In contrast, when his children act foolishly, God restrains their folly. He watches over them, delivers them from ultimate consequences, and sanctifies them. How about we jump into the Word of God? We're going to start by reading the first five verses of chapter 29. And here I want you to see the foolishness of self-reliance and the fact that it carries serious consequences. Let's read. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in their rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish, and Achish uh, said to the commanders of the Philistine, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David has ten thousands. And that is the word of the Lord. As we said earlier, the last we heard of David was in chapter 27. And we heard that in a moment of weakness, he had run to the Philistines, for safety, which is so ridiculous. Sorry. Thank you. He runs to the enemies of God for safety. God had delivered him time and again from Saul and from all the evil plans that Saul had, had concocted. And you know what David does? He decided to take matters into his own hands. He thought that he could go to the enemies of God and through his cunning and manipulation he could find the peace that he so wanted. 
So he leaves the safety of the Lord and he runs headfirst into danger, thinking that he's saving himself. I know it sounds silly when we look at it from this point of view, from our perspective, and yet, if we are honest, that is often the temptation we all face. How often, in a moment of weakness, a moment of frustration, or a moment of sheer defeat, we run to the things we know bring nothing but death. I don't know about you, but it is in those moments when I am tired, when I am sad, when I'm frustrated, or in moments of fear, in moments of unbelief, moments of desperation, that I am most tempted to run to the things of the world for safety, for pleasure, or for relief. The reality is that in these moments of extreme pressure, when things are not going well, when things don't turn out as expected, we only have two options. We either run to God as a refuge, or we do things our own way and run into the things of this world. David made a bad, made a bad choice. He ran to the world. He ran to, uh, straight to Gath, which was not only the land of Goliath, but of the people that wanted him and Israel dead. And now we will see that this bad choice had consequences. You see, David has now put himself in a terrible situation. Sure, for a while he deceived both himself and Achish, the king, that had welcomed him. He thought he was nailing it, you see, for a year and a half. He was deceiving Achish because he was saying that he was raiding all these people. When in reality, he was not attacking his own people. So he deceives Achish and he deceives himself because he thinks he finally got it. He found the peace he needed. And this, my friends, is the deceit of self-reliance. We can always deceive ourselves into thinking that we're killing it. When in reality, self-reliance will kill us. David deceived himself because he really thought he could live like a Philistine without becoming an enemy of Israel. And now he finds himself in a pickle. His friendship with the Philistines is literally leading him to becoming an enemy of the people of God. David, at this point, is marching with the Philistines to the battle against Israel, the chosen people of God. Church, the same is true of us. We cannot be both friends with the world without becoming friend, enemies of God. Remember the warning we find in James 4.4. 4. When James warns us, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church, can I talk to you for a moment? Actually, young people, if you are in your teen years, if you are in college age years, can I talk to you specifically? Because more than anyone in this room, you are in a season of life when you will be the most tempted to think that you can be both a child of God while living like the world. Now I want you to say, I want you to hear that I'm not saying that only you are tempted with this. We all are. But you uniquely are in a season of life that is marked by this idea that we want to be both children of God while also living like the world. And let me tell you this morning, that's just not possible. I want you to see this. For those of you 
that have been, you know, those of you that are older, those of you that have gone through it, would you raise your hand if you agree with me that it is better to learn this truth now than to wait for, <laughs> for God to show us? Okay, young people, can, can you hold your hand up? Young people, would you look around this? Would you look around you right now? And I want you to, you can put your hands on. I want you to hear this. I want you to notice this. That all the people that just raised their hands are people that walk through it. People that at time believe, I can be a son of God. I can be a child of God. While at the same time live like the world. Until they fell on their faces. Young people. Don't be foolish like we were. Don't wait until you're like, like David, head on against God. Would you learn today that you cannot be a friend of God while being also a friend of the world? It's just not possible. We're not telling you this just because the word of God tells you, which is plenty and more than enough. But we're also telling you this from our own experience. I truly hope that you don't wait to learn this the hard way, like many of us did. Now, going back to the story of David, David finds himself in a terrible situation. He's headed to war against the people of God, against the very people that he has been anointed as the king, the people that he's been called to lead. He's now heading into battle against them. So far, like I said, he has deceived Achish. He has pretended that he is fully on Achish's side while secretly raiding the enemies of Israel. He's been okay so far, but now things are coming to a head. He's marching with the Philistines into war. Thankfully, he gets recognized by the commanders of the Philistines who say, Is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Apparently this song was a bop because everybody knows that he made it all the way to Philistia (laughs) where the commanders of the Philistines heard the song. They recognize David and they now have to make a decision. Will they let him go into battle? Achish is trying to convince them to let David go. But clearly God has other plans. This leads us with a question. What will the consequences of his foolishness be? Let's see what happens. I want us to read verses 6 through 11. And here, I want you to see that in his sovereignty and providence, our gracious king delivers his children from the consequences of their foolishness. And I will expand on that. Verse 6 says this. It says... Uh, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and uh, and with me in the campaign. By the way, David has been anything but honest with Achish. He has deceived him for a year and a half. And Achish is saying, you have been honest with me. And then he says, For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go go back now. And go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. He was not. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. 
Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went out to Jezreel. Now I want us to pay attention to what we just read, because a minute ago, David was on his way to fight against Israel. But God, in his sovereign kindness doesn't allow that. God actually gives David an out. The commanders of the Philistines put their foot down and they do not allow Achish to bring David to war. And by this, David is humiliated and he is sent home. At this point, not only has been David persecuted by his very own king, he has been kicked out of his own country, but now the people that he thought he had deceived rejected him too. Now, what I want us to notice is that God uses this very humiliation and rejection of David as the means for his deliverance. Just as he did in chapter 25, God restrains David's foolishness. Back in chapter 25, he used Abigail, and now he uses the commanders of the Philistines. Now, during community group this past week, Lisa actually described this as God putting rail guards against our foolishness, which I think is a beautiful picture of what God does in us, you know, as his children. He puts rail guards that we would not fall head on into what we actually want or are causing. God in his mercy restrains David and delivers him from the consequences of his foolishness. David could have found himself in a battle against the very people God had appointed him to lead. This could have derailed any aspirations for the crown that he may have had, but it certainly wasn't about to derail God's plan. To, to derail God's plan. What we see here is, a, is an illustration of what David himself said in Psalm 139, verse 8. We actually looked at Psalm 139 a few weeks ago, but if you don't remember, verse 8 says this. It says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In this verse, what David is doing, he's marveling at God's presence. And in this passage, David has basically done what this verse says. He has made his bed in Sheol. Now, if you don't know what Sheol is, Sheol is the place of death. In his desperation, as he was fleeing from Saul, David basically made his bed in Sheol. He ran to the, to, to the Philistines. He ran to a place of death. But guess what? God was there. And God once again delivers him from his foolishness. Now the craziest part of the story to me is the fact that even when God is giving him an out, David insists that he wants to go to battle. He tells the commanders of the Philistines, why aren't you not letting me go? He insists on staying. But God in his mercy doesn't allow David to get what he wants. Boy, may they be something that we learn that God in his mercy will sometimes not let us exactly, you know, get exactly what we want. Now, what, uh, <clears throat> what does David's story have anything to do with me or with you today? Well, it is a reminder of how God deals with his children when they fail. Church, our good God delivers his children from their foolishness. By this, however, I don't mean that he will always deliver us from all the consequences of our foolishness. 
As a matter of fact, at times, the most loving thing that God does is allowing us to face the very consequences of our sin. God's discipline of His children is actually a sign of His love for us. What I mean when I say that God delivers us from the consequences of our foolishness is that the ultimate consequence of our sin and of our foolishness is death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. And from that, He has already delivered us at the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is great news. Let me ask you this morning, do you find yourself in a moment of foolishness like David? There are some of you that that maybe walked into this place this morning knowing that you are living just like David did. That you are making your bed in Sheol and you know it. If that is you this morning, run to God. Run to Him before He breaks your teeth to bring you back to Himself. Because in His love, He will. Are you astray today? Run to God. Are you distracted by the things of this world? Run to Him. Are you living a double life? Run to Him today. And He, if you confess your sins and you repent in your heart, He will forgive you. And like the prodigal son's father, He will run to you and love you. Maybe don't wait for the consequences of your foolishness to remind you that though the world promises happiness and safety, it ultimately only leads you to death. The Bible consistently reminds us to check our hearts and to make sure that we truly are in Christ. Peter calls it, our, our, uh, Peter calls it confirming our calling and our election. And so let me ask you this morning, if you find yourself running head on to the world consistently without a thought for God, is it possible that maybe you just don't yet belong to Him? If you are like Saul, who continuously runs away from God's revealed uh, will, if you consistently find yourself running to the world, is it possible that maybe you don't yet belong to Him? If that's the case for you, This is not a place of condemnation. I want you to hear this with hope. I want you to hear this with faith. That the Lord in His sovereignty may have you here this very morning. Just for Him to turn your eyes to Him. To run to Him. To confess your sins. To confess your utter inability to save yourself. Now let's keep reading and see how God has something much better for David even if things are about to get even worse. This leads us to our third point, uh, and, and, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6, through the first half of 6 in chapter 30. And here I want us to see that our gracious king is a refuge for his children in their time of need. Verse uh, 1 says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev uh, and against Ziklag. They had overcome uh, Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burnt with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. David, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. 
Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because, of all, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And we'll stop right here, and then we will pick it up again from the second half of this verse. I want you to see this. That another thing, another one of the things that we have to deal with when we live in this already not yet. When we live saved but still waiting for ultimate salvation. Whenever we still waiting for the glory of God to be revealed and for us to be in heaven with him. And this already not yet, we will always deal with hardship. By that I mean that in this broken world, we as believers will face hardship. Sometimes this hardship is of our own making, like David's. Sometimes it is undeserved. But the reality is that hardship is an inevitable part of the Christian walk. Doesn't sell many books when you, sell it, when you put it this way. But it's a reality. Jesus himself told us to consider, to pick up our cross and follow him, to lay down our lives. The Christian walk is one that includes suffering. In this story, after God gives David an out and delivers him from the consequences of his foolishness, David's come home to a happy home. Is that the case? No. David comes home to an ever bigger mess. While David is gone, the author tells us that the Amalekites raided Ziklag. David and his men come back, not to a happy house with a warm dinner, with the embrace of children and, and the wife or wives as you're like David <laughs> but David and his men come back to a burning city they come back to ashes now can you imagine this scene David and his men ready to get home ready to see their wives ready to see their children and as they're getting closer to the city you know, they're getting, you know, you know when you're almost home and you get excited when you see like Titusville 30 miles away or whatever. Like, you know, you get excited because you're about to see your wife. You're about to see your children. And all of a sudden, the men see smoke. And so they're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And then, and then they hurry up a little bit. And then they start running. And then they see ashes. They see fire. And they get home and they see there's nothing left. That their wives and children are gone. Now, they're not getting text messages from their captors saying, hey, they're alive, we need this much money. They have no idea what's going on. This is every dad's nightmare, every husband's nightmare. Thankfully, by the grace of God, the Amalekites hadn't killed anyone, but they had taken the families of all these men captive, most likely with the intention of selling them into slavery. As you can imagine, David and his men are distressed. Can you imagine how they're feeling? The Bible tells us that they wept until they couldn't weep any longer. Their families are gone. They have no idea what has happened to them. And yet the author tells us that, you know, David turns to God in his time of need. Now, I want, I want to point out, before we get into this, I want to point out something, just because it often raises questions. Notice that the author tells us that both of David's wives and his children were taken. What's wrong with that picture? Both of David's wives? <laughs> now I want you to notice here that when the Bible talks about Abigail, it often calls her Nabal's wife. 
In the original language here, or the ESV says Nabal's widow, the original language calls it Nabal's wife. I believe Tim already mentioned this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. That when the Bible mentions polygamy in situations like this, it never condones it. It actually shows time and again how bad an idea it is. I believe that the fact that the Bible calls Abigail repeatedly Nabal's wife, it's meant as a rebuke to this practice that is contrary to God's will. Keller actually um, says that Scripture subverts the practice, this practice by showing that having multiple wives is an absolute disaster socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and, relations, and relationally. There are some that say that the Old Testament condones polygamy or polyamory, but the reality is that it always shows that it is a foolish practice. Anyways, coming back to the story. I want you to think about this again, David, and the situation he's in. He and his men find themselves in a terrible, terrible place. David is distressed, and his men are not only weeping and mourning, but they now are angry, and they want to stone him. Can you imagine how David's feeling? Just when things can't get any worse, things get way worse for David. Now let me ask you this morning, can you relate to that? Have you been there? Have you ever been in a place when things already haven't turned out as you thought they would, and then suddenly everything gets way worse? Or maybe, are you there today? Are you like David and his men, tired of weeping? In a place of mourning? Just when things can get any worse... They did. Are you there today? Are you like David, hurting? Are you distressed? Are you tired of dealing with life? Or maybe, are you like his men who are bitter in their soul, looking for someone to stone? Do you find yourself today shaking your fist at the heavens and asking God, why me? If this is you, I want you to hear this this morning. If you are in Christ, you are not alone. If you are not in Christ, you don't have to be alone. Are you hurting? You're not alone. For those who are his children, God has made a promise that he will always be with them. Can I remind you that we serve and love a holy God? And one of the implications of His holiness is that because He is holy, God is unable and incapable of sinning against you. Have you ever thought about that? Even when you don't understand your circumstances, when you don't understand your life, when you look back at the mess behind you, have you ever thought of the fact that God never once has sinned against you? For those who are his children, we can hold on to the promise that Paul gives us in Romans 8, 38 and 39 when he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was true of David then, 
and it is true of you today. Amen. To use again the language of Psalm 139, David had made his, his bed in Sheol, and now he finds himself in a dark place. But do you remember what he says in verse 11 of Psalm 139? I'm glad you ask. That you, if you don't, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you don't, because I'm going to remind you. It says this in verses 11 and 12. It says, David himself says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for a darkness is as light with you. Amen. Church, David finds himself in a dark place now, facing the dark night of the soul. But he is about to see that even when dark, that even the darkness around him is not dark to God. God is still very much with him. David is at the end of his rope. He is tired of running, tired of making things work on his own. I imagine he is tired of manipulating Achish, and he is about to collapse. But you know what? The end of our rope is not always a bad place for us to be, because often there is where we find the Lord. Let's read the last two and a half verses. And I want you to see here that in the face of hardship, the word of God is what strengthens and guides us. Verse, the, second verse of, uh, the second part of verse 6 uh, through 8, it says this. It says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar, um, Abiathar uh, brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. In chapter 27, in his frustration and fear, we said that David had two options. He could run to God or he could take matters into his own hands. David is now facing the same two options. But this time, he runs to the God who is his refuge. What a beautiful sentence we find here in the second half of verse 6. The author tells us, But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. You see, sometimes being at the end of our rope is the best place for us to be. David strengthening himself and the Lord. Wow, what a beautiful thing. But what does that mean? I think Paul may help us illumine this passage with what he said in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 8 and 9, where he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Churchy was in his weakness when he was at the end of his rope, that David turned back to God to be strengthened by him. Only when we realize that we are utterly unable to save ourselves and, to turn to, and, and we turn to God, only then will we truly appreciate the beauty that is found in our weakness. What strengthened David was not a ritual. What strengthened him was not a magical incantation. What strengthened David was God himself and the promises that he knew he had in him. When David turned to God for refuge, in his weakness, he found strength. A strength that was not his own. This is what Paul calls the power of Christ resting upon him. 
In practice, David strengthened himself by turning his eyes toward God and meditating on who God is. He then asked Abiathar the priest for the ephod to inquire of the Lord. This sounds a little weird for us in our setting. We don't know what that is. But an ephod, as you may know, was a type of apron that was worn by the priest. But in the ephod, there were two oval-shaped rocks that they called them. They were called the Urim and Thummim. And these two rocks actually worked as sacred lots that were cast to discern the Lord's will. Now, we don't do that anymore because we have something way better. We have the Word of God. You see, when the Bible says that David was strengthened in the Lord, it doesn't mean that David just pumped himself up. He had to meditate on what was true. By meditating on these truths, to use the, the Jonathan, I mean, to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, his affections were stirred. He was strengthened. He was moved. But for that to happen, for our affections to be stirred, we have to be stirred by the truth, not just wishful thinking. Edwards says this, he says, Holy affections are not heated without light, but evermore arise from information of the understanding, some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light uh, or actual knowledge. In other words, the heat of our affections, our delight in God and our love for Him come from the light of God's truth. God's Word affects us. It shapes us and it moves us. And it is only the truth of who God is that can strengthen us in our weakness. Brother and sister, where are you today? Are you aware of your limits? It was only when David realized he was utterly unable to save himself that he found strength in God. Are you buying into the light of this world that you can be the captain of your own destiny? Thinking that like David, that you're thinking like David, that your own strength and cunning is enough. Let me tell you something this morning. You don't have to. It's exhausting and it's impossible. Let me ask you this morning, have you been relying on yourself? Or are you resting in the power of Christ? Do you realize that it is only in embracing your weakness that God's power is made perfect in our lives? Let me ask you now, are you hurting today? Do you feel like David when things kept getting worse and worse? Do you feel like you're drowning in pain? Are you drowning in loneliness? I want you to hear this clearly. I want you to notice what I am not saying this morning. Though in this case, things will turn out for good, turn out for good, for good for David, as we'll see next week. The promise is not that when you see God, your hardship will cease. That is not a promise that the Bible has. The Bible does not tell you that when you turn to the Lord, your problems will stop. That's not it. But what the Bible does promise us is that when we do seek the Lord, He will be our refuge. That He is always there with us when we see Him and when we don't. When we perceive His presence or when we don't. The promise is that even when you're facing the dark night of the soul, God is with you and He will strengthen you. What do you say this morning together we confess our utter inability to save ourselves? How about we confess together that we need a Savior? And that God in His kind has already provided a deliverance for us, His children. This morning we will do this. And we will do it by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Just like David... um, just like when David was strengthened, uh, sorry, when David strengthened himself in the Lord, 
What we're about to do is not just a ritual. And I want you to be aware of that. This is not a ritual. It is an act of remembering who God is and what He did for us at the cross. When we take communion, we all become preachers. Because we are all confessing together that when we were weak, when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, Christ came to save us. When we partake of communion, we are declaring together that Christ came to save us. That he has already paid for our salvation in the cross. And that that very cross is what sustains us and what sanctifies us today by the power of his spirit. We are also confessing, when we partake of the elements, we are confessing that one day Christ will come back for his people. And that is worth remembering and celebrating. We will now take the elements and I will walk us through it. I left mine in my chair. The Bible tells us not to take this lightly. What we're about to do is not a ritual, like I said, but an act of remembering. Remembering that which is true. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that when the Lord Jesus, after he had taken, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And as you take the bread this morning, I want you to think about, about Christ, about that his body was broken for you, for your deliverance, for your salvation, and that in that act, God showed his love for you. I do want to warn you, just because I've done it before, if you are not yet a believer, I would ask you to abstain from participating. But as you hold on to this bread, if you are a child of God, I want you to remember the body of Christ that was broken for your sake. Let us take the bread. The Lord Jesus then took the cup of the new covenant. And he says, this is my blood. Let us partake of the cup. The Bible tells us that whenever we eat this body and drink of this blood, we are proclaiming that the Lord is coming back again. What do you say in response to that? We now stand up and we sing about the hope that we have in Christ alone.